Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Still unnamed, but that's okay. We're still working on that. I contacted somebody in the branding department. At least I think that's what it was at one point in time. It looks like it's been burned by some sort of arcane fire, but that's fine. I'm joined today by Nathan, and we are here in this gorgeous... What what kind of grove is this exactly? Well, I don't think it's a normal grove. I think it's um it's definitely kind of in its own category of groves. Maybe kind of stretching the definition of that word a little bit. Um, but this is a place I'd say where people grow trees. Um, it's not clear where the light is coming from, and um, the floor appears to extend down into the sky in a kind of fractal way. But apart from that, I think that we're pretty safe within the definition of a grove. Yeah, this is the tallest ceiling. I can't actually see the top of this room. It's weird. I could almost swear that there's actual, like, sunlight, like you said, but, I mean, I'm sure it's got to be an actual room. I mean, come on, we're in the middle of a building. Yeah, no, no, no. It's definitely um, an architectural achievement, is what I would say. All right, so I'm going to read out this week's memo. I've got it right here, and it reads, oh, let's see, who is this from? Oh, interesting. This this one is is actually from Zach, who is still on the roof uh, collecting birds. I don't know why. I don't think he does either. And it reads, uh, it's finally happened. I have become their king. I am now the bird king. You must all bow before me. Signed, the bird king. You think he means like just birds or also us? Uh, you know, it's an excellent question. How many birds would you have to have in your retinue to qualify making human beings bow? I don't know. I think it's less about, like, the number and more about the organization. How did you manage to find your way into the Grove? Uh, well, I took a left at the bowling alley. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been meandering for a couple of days. Uh, my food should last for a week or two, so I'm not really concerned yet. And if there are a lot of spots like this, you know, where we can actually, you know, gather food in kind of a, an impromptu sort of a ad hoc way, then uh, that, I think, should sustain, well, me for a while at least. I don't know what your situation is. Oh, it's fine. I, I, I've been, like, MacGyvering, like, a paperclip down inside of a vending machine, so it's okay. all good. Yeah, yeah that's so... probably actually simpler than what I've been doing. <laughs> I mean, my backpack is full to bursting with cheap food, so... But you think it's good to eat the stuff that we're finding here in the grove that's a good question you know i found a lot of like prop stuff i like i tried putting my money into the vending machine but it, it was almost as if it was built never to actually be accessed the food was very old it looked mm -hmm. like a display almost what currency but, are you using uh well you know it's the funniest thing i actually found some spanish doubloons uh <laughs> in a corner somewhere and I've just been using those at the at the vending machine. Surprisingly, some of them actually work. Okay. So some of those are old-timey sort of Spanish, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, uh, vending machines. I feel like it was pretty much exclusively the sorts of things that were on sunken ships back in piratey times. That's like one of the few currencies that you ever hear about was the Spanish doubloons. Mm -hmm. I think it's just because it's a fun word, like... I'm sure that there are other currencies that were more important economically than doubloons were, but they didn't have quite, you know, the mouthfeel of doubloons. <laughs> the mouth, you know, it like as all like horrendous as like pirating may be, and I'm sure it was like a horrific actual period of history. 
it is sort of fun mm. like all the crazy fun words that we get from like even romanticized pirate speak i think there's a lot of romance in old school sea travel and i don't know he ever read a uh, horatio hornblower or played um like or what was it, not revenge return to the Oberdin or anything like that no so i think that anything that takes place on a pre-industrial ship like a wooden ship that's supposed to travel at sea is just so interesting and it's the idea of um being simultaneously out in the open and then in such a contained finite space hmm. and um of having these jobs that involve you know being out in the open air you know for weeks at a time and being you know very close to the same group of people i think that's very romantic and i think there's a reason that like maybe not necessarily that reason but i do think there's a reason that people talk about um sailors developing this love for the sea and developing this love for sea travel in a way that like maybe isn't necessarily quite as prevalent anymore because I think that, you know, it's different now. And then also there's all the problems with our kind of, uh, you know, most people who travel now by sea today are going to be in the Navy. And the U.S. Navy has a lot of problems with, like, you know, putting people through sleep deprivation and things like that. Right. So you don't and get so, quite the same experience. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever consciously considered the juxtaposition of being in like an enclosed space so much so that you could get cabin fever mm -hmm. like i've watched the documentary muppet treasure island so i know all about cabin fever all right yeah, they no, sang a song fun. about it <laughs> so yeah, four no, star. Uh, what, what's that we're called like an earworm yeah yeah it's an earworm for sure but just the concept of like you are in a very small space surrounded by the same people and you are limited in that. But at the same time, you're also in a vast nothing. Mm -hmm. And so it is this very odd pairing of like you are contained to this vessel in the middle of a vast, open, like mm -hmm. inhospitable area. I guess that's why space travel and space terms are also like, I guess, are used interchangeably and vice versa with like sea travel like mm -hmm. sea and space like because it's kind of the same idea right when like space travel happened it's like we're in this cramped very industrial machine and everything has been plotted out to save on weight and space and all that mm -hmm. and it's and, almost like while you're on board the vessel your world is simpler your world is contained to a very limited number of variables and moving parts Right, because you but can't I, survive otherwise. I interrupted you, so please continue. No, it's 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 exactly that. It would be like being confined to your house, like in the middle of a – if you lived out in the country, but you mm. couldn't leave your house. Like, right. And then you add in the factors of exploration and adventure and discovery and making a ton of money potentially, um, especially <laughs> you know if you're in a lower social class in a place where there's not a lot of upward social mobility, you know this is a way to really set yourself up um and then interesting crew dynamics i think are part of it as well um because you would have you know the officers and midshipmen and so on you know this is based on my very scholarly reading of horatio hornblower 
um, who would be very much from the upper class and who would be sort of important um, people and not only important, but people who were raised in a totally different culture from the people who were working the ship who might be from a different country. They might be immigrants and they would almost certainly be laborers. And so in addition to the sort of normal cultural gap that you would have from people, you know, between people from different countries, you have the cultural gap of people who were raised in, you know, a pre-industrial aristocrat class versus people who were raised in a pre-industrial laborer class. And the level of the, the dynamics there, I think, are really interesting. Hmm. And I think that, you know, whenever you're in a closed situation like that, you develop um, very close relationships. And the example that I'm thinking of is a dorm where like <laughs> a dorm, a guy's dorm is literally just a stinky boat on the on the ocean. It, you know, there are parallels. I'm really drawing from, you know, a patchwork of different experiences to paint a picture of what this might be like in my head. Um, but, you know, it's like a dorm where you got a couple of people and you are too close to those people. And it's simultaneously really annoying. And it's a way that you develop a bond that's actually pretty unique in terms of its depth and its closeness. Um, hmm. So, you know, not necessarily a relationship that's always strictly positive, but a relationship that's kind of like uniquely intimate. I mean, um, it's real. Like, yeah. it's not a theoretical relationship. Because I've, I've heard this a lot with people who come back from school, from college, let's say, mm -hmm. and they will complain ad nauseum about their dorm experiences and some of the ridiculousness that they put up with, and yet they talk about it so fondly, and they're like, oh, I miss it so much. Exactly, and it's simultaneously like a Halcyon kind of experience and a huge pain in the ass. I've got a friend who actually was in the Navy for a while, and um, it's a shame because um, he did talk a lot about um, how sometimes um, exploitative and sort of indifferent to the physical needs of the sailors the Navy could be. And for whatever reason, like, it really does seem that, like, the main thing that comes up a lot is ridiculous shifts, you know, really bizarre hours. And I don't mm. know why that is so much a thing, but if you read anything about, like, problems that occur on, um, you know, Navy ships... It's a pretty ubiquitous experience that you would go through this process of intense sleep deprivation as part of your experience, hmm. um, which is a shame, you know, because it kind of ruins my whole romanticized uh, mental image that I've created for myself of what this whole uh, seafaring experience might be like. Well, I, I have to wonder if, like, in some search, like situations, if part of that wasn't maybe a way of keeping people in line and disconnected enough from each other mm -hmm. where like mutiny wouldn't be as much of a problem. It's like, if I separate y'all in crazy right. hour shifts, you're super tired. No one's talking to each other. There's no way for a coalition to form. And question that I haven't explored much is does that particular problem extend backwards in time to before the modern U.S. Navy? I I don't know. That's an excellent You're question. Either, but I'm really curious now. Because there's a lot of, like, terms 
as far as sailing that have been around for hundreds of years and will probably still be in use for another hundred years. All right. Sleep deprivation at sea. I am seeing a couple of... Okay. Interestingly, one of the first things that comes up is about yachting. Um, <laughs> what? Sleep deprivation on your yacht, which is like not something that had occurred to me. Um, so maybe there's something going on here where it's just hard to get like a circadian rhythm going. Oh. Um, obviously, like there are jobs that need to be done 24 hours, but you would assume that you would rotate people after those jobs. Maybe it's just more efficient to have a smaller number of people rotating through these different tasks. You know, maybe it just costs less to have like a helmsman or whatever you call them um, to have two of those guys rotating on the wheel than to have three or four and to give each one of them shorter shifts. Hmm. Um, I also know that um, hammocks didn't get um, added to um, Western European ships until relatively late in the game. So not until after um, contact with, um, I think it was First Nations people who like invented hammocks, did uh, Western ships, European ships, start to have them in the boat. And before that, you just slept on the ground. You were just like on a pile. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Yeah, which seems like the worst possible experience. <laughs> like it immediately transforms my kind of like idyllic like slightly fantastical image of what this is all like to just a nightmare i mean you'd just be sliding around on a nasty wet floor with a bunch of other people trying to sleep you know hitting your head on like on the on the walls and the floor you know trying to sleep every time you hit a wave you know your entire body goes six inches in the air i don't know that sounds like a nightmare and immediately kind of like sours my appetite for this whole experience well, you mentioned horn blowers, and I, I have a story about a whistleblower for you. Okay, I'm ready. So you're you're a bit of a legal beagle, and uh-huh. so obviously before we started recording, I had to look up. There's two things that I looked up, and I'll give you the shorter one first, and that is I wanted to know what the longest current running civil court case was. Ooh, okay. It's currently going. It's been going for 33 years and 362 days. Amazing. It is by one James Martin, and it was started on uh, December 14th, 1972. Okay. And basically, reading from here on the terminal, it says, uh, basically, he had to attend a three-day pre-introduction physical exam to assess his fitness for military service in the Vietnam War. He was subsequently classified as disabled. Okay. And so basically what he's suing them over is, it says here, the original filed case, which remains active today, regards the subsequent academic and professional discrimination and interference experienced by Mr. Martin following this detainment for medical testing. That's fascinating. So... He's he's fighting the fact that like I don't know if he actually is or not, but the fact that that label has followed him, so he's being discriminated against for a permanent uh, cl- classification of him as a person, essentially. And it says here, uh, 
it's an issue that Mr. Martin, the Office uh, for Civil Rights, and the U.S. Department of Education argues violates the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which forbids discrimination on the basis of alleged or of actual medical history. So it's like he gets labeled as disabled way back in, let's see, in 72. And specifically the context of the draft. Right. So that could be anything. I mean, there's a lot of things that can get you disqualified for military service. Like... Mm-hmm. Even even things that are what I would probably think of as relatively mild. I mean, there are people who can't join the military because they're too tall. Right, like, because right. you can't fit in the machines or, like, a cockpit. So, mm-hmm. like, that's insane to me. And it's still going on. What I'm thinking about, um, this is one of the things that, to me, is interesting. And if I'm being dull or, you know, t- just slap me upside the head, let me know. Because um, it's not always easy for lawyers to tell what is and isn't interesting. It's like this sort of disability that we get when we uh, go through <laughs> law school. Um, people think that if you sue somebody, you have to prove that they did something wrong. And then you get paid. And there's actually another step, which is you have to prove that they did something wrong and also that you were injured by it. Hmm. Um, this is all reductive. But the damages portion is that you don't just have to prove that, you know, oh, I was, you know, at a red light and somebody ran the red light and hit me. It's, I was at a red light and the person ran the red light and hit me. And then as a result, as a but-for and approximate cause of their misconduct, their tortious action, I suffered all these damages. Um, Then you've got to actually provide evidence of what happened to you. So it sounds like this person is going through and they're saying that the damages they suffered because of this classification affected all kinds of aspects of their life. Right, yeah. Between I, academic and professional. Right. I wonder if that's why this has taken so long is because this person is basically putting up their entire life as evidence and saying, look, the whole trajectory of my existence was different because of this mistreatment. Hmm. Also, I mean, this yeah. is legal advice. That that would be that's probably what this person and his lawyers are gonna have to try and prove is that really he would have gotten into this school, he would have got this job if you hadn't mm-hmm. classified him as disabled. That's it's very interesting. That's just the that was just the warm up thing. Because okay. then I got onto an entirely different thing. Because originally I wanted to know who like the winningest lawyer was, like who won okay. the most cases, right? Mm-hmm. And so. I pulled up the Wikipedia page on Gerald Leonard Spence. Okay. Semi-retired American trial lawyer. Uh, he's in the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame, and he has never lost a criminal case before a jury, either as a prosecutor or a defense attorney. Ooh. And he has not lost a civil case since 1969. Wow. How many cases overall? I don't know if that... I wanted to find that out, because I feel like he's done a lot, and I feel like possibly so many that they didn't even list them. Because, I mean, at least on his Wikipedia page, he's 93 years old. And That's it's still, fascinating. there's no uh, death day. So I think he's still alive. Still kicking, still winning. So the craziest case that I found on this page, mm-hmm. based on how it's hyped up, I think there might have even been film made about it, possibly, was the case of Karen Silkwood. Okay. So reading here from the article... 
uh, Spence gained attention for the Karen Silkwood case. Karen Silkwood was a chemical technician at the Kerr-McGee plutonium production plant, where she became an activist and vocal critic of plant safety, also known as a whistleblower. On November 13, 1974, Silkwood died in a one-car crash uh, under suspicious circumstances after mm-hmm. reportedly gathering evidence for her union. Spence represented Silkwood's father and children, who charged that Kerr-McGee was responsible for exposing Silkwood to dangerous levels of radiation— and Spence won a 10.5 million verdict for the family. Okay. And let's see. Upheld the family's right to sue under the state law for punitive damages from a federally regulated industry. The Silkwood case achieved international fame and was the subject of many books, magazine, newspaper articles, and a major motion picture, Silkwood, starring Meryl Streep. Oh, okay. Well, so part of the things I think is interesting, um, and again... If this is not interesting, tell me, because I have no way of knowing. Um, <laughs> is that people talk about, like, oh, you know, who's the winningest lawyer? And, you know, whether or not a lawyer has a good win-loss ratio, essentially. And don't know, necessarily, that there's a lot of sort of politicking and a lot of sort of strategic maneuvering around having a good win rate. That's especially true for um, prosecutors and people who are, like, district attorneys when they're elected. Um, because you as a, as an attorney want to have a good win rate, you know, you want to have a high proportion of wins. And as a person who's bringing criminal charges, you actually get to decide what those charges are going to be. And not only that, not only when you like have somebody who's like arrested, who's being held, um, you know, awaiting charges, do you get to choose what they're going to be charged with? You get to choose whether or not to try them at all. So prosecutors have a decision about, you know, if we have somebody, are we going to spend money to try to win this case or are we not? And the potential issue with that is that you have to present your case history essentially as an argument for reelecting you or maybe electing you to be a judge or some other kind of, you know, higher position and say look how many cases i want and that affects your decision making when you're making choices about what to charge people with and whether to charge people you mean to like to see a person and their circumstance as another hash mark on the board like exactly um to part of your score essentially and say that you've got two people who are um both being held for drug possession or like sales right not like you know trafficking but like you know something that's a little bit lighter on the scale of severity um you would have to make a decision if one of those people can afford to have their own private defense attorney and one of them is going to have to go with the public attorney who has a million cases and (laughs) too many cases a lot of time yeah to devote to that particular case you've got a little bit of an ethical dilemma which is, am I going to go harder after this guy who doesn't have connections because I can get a plea deal out of him? Mm. You know, I'm more likely to win if I do prosecute. You know, if I do prosecute him, I'm more likely to um, get that win rate percentage that I'm presenting as part of my CV and the argument that I should get elected. I'm presenting that as part of my argument. 
It's almost like like Savannah, like Law of the Jungle, where it's like or natural selection, where mm-hmm. you know a lioness picks off a zebra with a limp. But it's mm-hmm. like for humans, it's like you do bring into that moral dilemma. It's like right. yes, this is a slam dunk, but it was it would be so difficult because it's like the reason why this works is because this person is in a bad position where like there's exactly. no possible way for them to win. Yep. And it quickly becomes kind of a class thing um, because it's a question of, are you going to focus on cases that you think you can win? And those cases are probably going to be predominantly poor people who can't get a private attorney who's going to be able to devote more time and attention to their case. Um, so this is all pretty gloomy. <laughs> um, I could I could talk for a long time about like the problems in the criminal system. Do you, do you feel like a lot of lawyers, well, maybe not all, not I don't know about a lot. Do you feel like this is just a, an odd, obtrusive thought, but do you feel like people who study law would be like relatively good Dungeons and Dragons players? Because I was just players. thinking about this because there is an uh. artistry to lawyering, right? Uh-huh. About how you say things and how you frame things, but you also have to have the book knowledge, right? So, like, if you got a really good lawyer, you could make one heck of a dungeon master because it's like those are the two things that you need to play D&D. It's like you need to understand the rules of the game. There are certain things you don't mess with, things that you have to follow the rules on. However, how you enforce them or how you word things, that's the artistic side of things. I think the immediate problem that you would run into is math. Um, (laughs) you're good with the storytelling you're good with like the world building and all this stuff and the public speaking aspect like most lawyers are pretty good at that the issue you immediately run into is when you're rolling dice you are multiplying numbers by other numbers and you're going to start to see that person sweat like (laughs) a lot because you've got this like lofty position you know that you're supposed to have this prestige associated with it and um you know, you may or may not, as an attorney, be able to multiply two numbers together. <laughs> well, my yeah. big thing is like, I'm just imagining, like my as a, I've been a dungeon master before, and my mm. nightmare then, I have a new like worst player vision. So for a DM, for me personally, the worst possible character combination that someone can show up to play is a tiefling bard, okay. because it is a race in the game that is insanely charismatic, obscenely okay. so. They can get their way whatever they want. They can make your NPCs do anything because they will have such high charisma roles. But then you add Bard on top of it, which its entire thing is about charming people and about getting them on your side. It's the worst combination. So imagining a professional lawyer playing a tiefling Bard is now the worst possible thing. Because you're assigning lawyers a lot of charisma. Well, Um, not necessarily charisma, but being able to make an argument for something. Because a lot of times DMs will permit certain things if players can actually couch it and give a reason for what they're doing or why. Because, and this isn't every dungeon master. I think the the better dungeon masters do this, which is, it's the rule of cool. It's like, sure, I'll let you do this if you can give me a reason why your character would do it. Does your character have the supplies on them to do X, Y, or Z? Can you give me a story reason why I should let this fly? And if you open up that door just a little bit for a tiefling bard, ooh, watch out. Because they will, if you crack that door open a little bit, that possibility, 
Woo! They are gonna run all over you. I guess in the past I've thought that like a lawyer would map most closely onto like a wizard or like a sort of like esoteric spellcaster. But I think that like for trial lawyers, a bard might be more accurate. Um Oh, I immediately think of like Harold Hill. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh! That is so accurate. I really wanted I, I haven't done this I haven't played D D in a while, but I like next time i play we'll probably do um a character who is like harold hill as a rogue slash bard oh my i mean um, you literally just described harold hill yeah anyways exactly. he is literally those two things he's charismatic he can convince people to do stuff he's got this like sort of you know implied dexterity you mm -hmm. know all these traits right sneaky kind of a person just in terms of like what his you know his character is um so i think that could work um, I think that one of the issues that I run into is that, like, I'm not as interested in the combat part of D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. I think that usually, for most people who are doing, like, a standard sort of campaign and they're doing 5e, the combat drags a little bit for me. It tends to, like, usually be pretty predetermined in terms of outcomes because the, um, the DM doesn't want to kill the party. <laughs> um, they're like, oh, hey, you got owned. Uh, sorry. And there's not that much... There's not that much opportunity to really pose a threat to the party without seriously inconveniencing them in the story, and there's not as much opportunity for storytelling during combat. Characters who can't fight, who get just bulldozed during that section of the game. Yeah, that's why you got to protect your... <laughs> my, my dungeon master calls them squishies. Mm -hmm. Those are your spell casters. It's like the people who, if if, like... If your tanks are down and they're about to get hit, you you're, that's, you're in trouble. It's going to be bad. I mean, balancing combat, making it interesting. And yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with the players, honestly, as far as how combat flows and how much character stuff can happen mm -hmm. during combat. I feel like a lot of players disconnect um, the role-playing aspect of the game from the combat part, where the combat, like you said, sort of becomes this a tedious chore to get you to the more juicy, interesting character drama or overall plot. But the right. best parties that I've ever been involved in are actively, like, during combat, stay in character. It's like, mm -hmm. if if I'm doing this thing, I'm going to yell my character's catchphrase or say, watch this, or, hey, catch, what or, like, try... Right, tries to remember that the other characters are also there and make it less about just your character fighting these NPCs. You kind of have to have an understanding a little bit with the Dungeon Master because it's like, if the combat is balanced in such a way as to make it a real challenge, then as a player, you kind of want to be min-maxing and you kind of want to be making choices based on what's going to produce the best numerical outcome versus if you have a challenge that's a little bit more kind of like surmountable you've got more room to role play for a good long while i didn't know about the difficulty uh scale rating for enemies so i didn't even look at that i didn't know that existed so like it actually tells you hey if your players are this level any of the creatures on this list will pose them a balanced challenge where there are enough abilities that will inconvenience them to make it interesting without making it a tpk like it's it's very helpful but i didn't know about that so what i would do is i would have a uh a lot of homebrew stuff where it's like well i have these stats for a skeleton 
they're storming this ruin, and if they're doing really well, I'm just going to throw more skeletons at them. Like, I would sort of balance it live while things were going on and say, oh, I got to make these guys a little bit beefier. Okay, the next one you see is big, stronger than the other ones. Like, I would just improv stuff on the fly because, like I said, I didn't know about the difficulty rating scale. So I would... What is a skeleton beefy? I'm being, I'm being <laughs> He's big boned. He's big boned. Okay, okay. I'm he's, he's got thick, I'm thick bones. <laughs> it's a bone titan. You know, like I would just sort of, I, I had to do that for a couple boss fights too, where I was like, wow, these players are just wailing away on this boss. Oh, I guess he's going to regenerate somehow, but I have, actually have I to make they, it make sense for the story. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's like, um, it's also partially where you kind of like have to understand that what you're doing in D&D isn't just like, you know, recreating a movie or a video game that it's not supposed to be like mechanically a challenge and the fun isn't in sitting down and crunching numbers um thankfully for me and figuring out um what's going to produce like the highest attack stat the fun is in telling a story with your friends right yes exactly and i mean the, just it's very it's very interesting and I'm sure that there have been studies and there will be studies probably years down the line about, like, the benefits of playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. Mm -hmm. In much the same way that there was a lot of suspicion surrounding video games. It's hilarious to me that, like, there was this moral panic about video games for the longest time, for decades. <laughs> Where they're like, video games are like killing people. Like it's the worst right, right, thing right. for you. And then they found out, oh no, video games are like pretty good for you. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like it is good for your brain health. Um, it doesn't really have any negative effects on your personality in terms of like your propensity to commit real world violence or like real world crimes or anything like that. And uh, yeah, also happened to be fun. So. That was probably one of the most interesting studies, and I don't remember what the study was, but there was, I think I read it about it, I read about it in a psychology course years ago, mm -hmm. where it was all about, like, what to do with anger and outlets for it. So the study, I'm going to butcher what the study was, but as I recall it, they had these real-world people... Okay. sign up for this thing this test and then they had to interact with a fake person over like a messaging system and they made this fake person the most aberrant like politically divisive frustrating person okay. that this the test subjects would have to deal with and then what they did was they like did a, a biological run-up of like their heart rate their body temperature probably and basically like how they were feeling where they were mentally how angry were they basically and then for some of the people they let them just sit there and do nothing after this really unfortunate like angering interaction with this fake person right. but then the other half of the group was taken into a room with a bunch of breakable objects and like a bat Mm -hmm. And was basically told, you have, like, 20 minutes, go crazy. Can I try and to actually... predict what the outcome was? Sure. I think the people who broke, based on psychological research, the people who broke the objects in, like, the 
catharsis room were much angrier at the end of the experiment. You are absolutely correct. Yes. You know, like and he... that's one of the things I, okay. I talk to people about this a lot in the context of sports because a lot of people talk about boxing specifically in martial arts and they say, oh, well, that's a way to get the anger out of you. As if your anger is something that like is trapped in your body and accumulates and that you have to like excrete. Hmm. Um, and that's the whole theory of like catharsis, right? And that's totally, totally wrong. It has no grounding in reality <laughs> at all. Um, it makes a lot of sense. It ha it's, has a lot of explanatory value and it matches with what your expectations are. No evidence that that's how anger works. There's a ton of evidence that acting out a violent impulse, even if it's in a way that's not hurting a person, reinforces that impulse, makes you feel more of that emotion. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if somebody is giving you a hard time and you like really let them know what you think of them, you'll feel so much worse. Yeah, because now you're living you're living in the aftermath of that. Mm -hmm. Than if you said nothing. So it's like this idea that negative feelings are something you have to get out of your body is is wrong. Um and <laughs> I I wish more people knew that. Well, I remember years ago. I I had this leadership textbook. I was in Civil Air Patrol, and mm -hmm. I had to read it. And one of the things that was, like, in the margins, it was just barely mentioned, but it was talking about leadership and about, like, dealing with frustrations and anger. And one of the things that it said in the book was if you're ever, like, super angry about something and frustrated, go on a run. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because it's going to tire you out, clear your head, and give you a chance to think, but it's not an like, objectively aggressive thing to do, necessarily. Yep. You're not breaking something, right? Constructive, nonviolent activities are the best way to deal with those kinds of, like, especially anger, negative emotions. Yeah, and, and honestly, I would just say, I don't know if there's a division, really, because you, talk, you talked about, like, your thoughts on anger building up inside someone, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering if it's just more broadly just this sort of energy, right, that you accrue over time. Mm -hmm. And people, I feel so bad when I see people who don't have any outlets whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They don't edit videos. They don't draw. They don't do music. They don't box. Mm -hmm. They don't bike. Like, it's like if they could just find an outlet for that energy – People who don't box are so sad. It's it's so rough. Um, I'm kidding, but please continue. <laughs> okay, real quick. I when I was a kid, uh, some family friends bought me. It was a Mega Man, like boxing dummy. Mm -hmm. It was like one of the a bigger inflatable version of like the Weeble Wobble thing. So it had a weighted base to it, and so it would pop back up. But you could like sort of punch it, and it would right. like pop back up. Don't know what happened to it. Don't know why they gave it to me. Never played Mega Man before, but for mm -hmm. some reason, I just had that as a core memory. I just had a Mega Man boxing thing oh, in my yeah. room. I think everybody has a core memory about like uh, a punching bag or like a dummy or something like that that they had as a kid. Because I think everybody went through that experience. What got you um, into boxing? Just curious. I always thought it was interesting. Um, I've always been really interested in... We've got to decide how deep we're going to get down this rabbit hole because we could go pretty <laughs> deep. Um, but I've always been really interested in competition, um, in any practice where it's adversarial and where the point is that you have to beat somebody else and outperform somebody else and where understanding the other person's strategy is part of formulating your strategy. 
Hmm. And I think that martial arts are the sport, and the, you know, the family of sports, where it's most important that you understand what your opponent is going to try to do. Um, it's also really good exercise. Um, but I think the main thing is that kind of like strategic depth um, that really is compelling for me. Hmm. But um, I, I want to clarify when we're talking about like the whole anger and the catharsis thing. I don't think that it's impossible for somebody to use boxing or martial arts generally to process or deal with negative emotions like you're talking mm -hmm. about with or run. stress. Yeah, I think that it's like any kind of exercise that you're getting involved in is a way to manage stress and manage your emotions. And I think that like any discipline that involves studying a form and trying to replicate it can do the same thing. But I think that the issue is when people are um, channeling aggression in a way that's aggressive. Hmm. You know, when people are channeling their aggression into an activity that makes them angry, that makes them feel aggressive feelings, um, I think that that's where you kind of reinforce those feelings rather than releasing them or distracting yourself from them. Or like you were talking about, taking your energy and putting it into something that's not destructive. I want to give it a try one of these days. I've never, I've never actually tried it. I think oh. eons ago we had a boxing, we had a, a bag hanging in our garage, probably popped it a couple times, but... I don't like beyond we boxing, which you know, champion obviously. Basically, a, a faithful recreation. Yeah, yeah. You know, if no, I walk not. into an arena and I just see Matt standing there, the me character, mm. I might just turn around and walk away. Yeah, because Matt Matt's got hands. He's god tier. I mean, he's. Um, <laughs> I wanted them to add him to Smash Brothers. I'm pretty sure this is a deep cut. Um, but the we boxing trainer, who um like walks you through the tutorial i'm like 80 percent sure is marvelous marvin hagler um of like the voice fame. or no i think it's supposed i think it's based on like his likeness i think it's oh um but i can't prove that the guy Speaking who holds up the pads right yeah that's Speaking matt of... yeah he's he's okay. he's a meme at this point yeah i think he is often used as like the de facto pro player of like most of the wii sports like he is the one you always have to beat he's the okay. final boss i'm gonna ask you to do something right now which is google wii boxing matt all right and just look at his face and hold it in your face for a second and then google marvin hagler and look at that face and tell me that matt and marvin hagler are the same person marvin hagler marvin hagler h-a-g-l-e-r it's a oh you know what yeah i kind of see it maybe this is just headcanon but i'm convinced the younger photo of him yeah like when that i'm looking like, at when he was active is the one that like looks more like matt it's it yeah that's pretty uh it's pretty interesting i mean good old nintendo and their boxing games and physical comparisons um speaking of famous uh, athletes and specifically boxers. If you're ever interested, we live in Columbus, um, which is for the viewers. Uh, you obviously already know that we live in Columbus. Mm -hmm. um, in Columbus uh, is a gym run by Buster Douglas, who in 1991, 1992, uh, beat 
Mike Tyson was a 42 to one underdog and ended Mike Tyson's winning streak. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. Now he runs a boxing gym in Columbus. You, it, it's like, it's super cheap. Cause it's like a community boxing center or community gym. Um, the membership's like 15 bucks a month and you can go in and yeah, Buster Douglas will like hold pads for you and like teach you some basics. That's, I think boxing is probably, I think old, old school boxing is different. Okay. Like not just the personalities, but also like, I don't know. I don't, it's weird how approachable some of these old school boxers are, you know? Well, I also didn't know as much about CTE. So that's a factor in the, like, at least in the competitive world. What's um, CTE? When you say approachable. Oh, it's the disease that you get when you repeatedly get punched in the face. Oh, the Rocky disease. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. exactly. It's what makes gotcha. it sound like Rocky. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, just like the idea that you can walk in off the street into someone's boxing business. Oh, yeah. Like someone who used to be like televised, someone mm -hmm. who like modern day boxers have like bodyguards and like limos mm -hmm. and massive man. Like you're not getting within 10 feet of these people. But and weirdly, like the f there's much less money in the sport now as um, the celebrity of boxers has changed. And, you know, like you're saying, now they have more bodyguards, they're not as accessible, um, and so on and so forth. Um, the sport doesn't make as much as it used to. It's not as popular. Do you think it's just, like, an oversaturation of, like, people who don't really have a persona or, like, um, image or character to them? Or I think a lot of it has to do with just the way the public feels about sports. Mm. Um, and I think that, like, I don't know what's happened with football viewership in recent years, but I know there's been more controversy about football and about the fact that football, you know, hurts the players. Yes. Um, well, I think the persona thing could be a part of it. I think that some of that has to do with um, the way that it's marketed, and some of it is just like, you know, Muhammad Ali was really charismatic. Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard was really charismatic, and there's just not that many athletes who also have broadcast skills that good. Right. And so it's hard to build up a – it's easy. It's super easy to take, like, Mike Tyson or Sugar Ray Leonard or Muhammad Ali and build a character and make them popular and make them famous. It's not that easy to take just a regular person, you know, who happens to be an athlete. And I think that we haven't had that many people in recent years who are that way. Well, um, then also you think about, like, all the uh, – like, the promotional stuff for, like, MMA where they hype it up – and mm -hmm. you will have to watch like three fights before the main event, and then the actual fight is like ten seconds. Yeah, that does happen. That's. I think Conor McGregor was the most um, famous recent mixed martial artist who was kind of in that same general vein. Is those old school boxers who were really famous who had like a character around them? Yeah, he definitely had um, a a presence. Like, yeah, and one of the cool things about Conor McGregor is that he's not physically imposing. You know, he's a karate, he's a karateka or whatever you call um, somebody who practices karate, um, <laughs> which is not like considered the best base for MMA, and which is not that like imposing a sport compared to like boxing or wrestling. Um, and he himself is like a small guy. He like has you know not like hyper masculine features. Um, and he just kind of seems like a regular dude, but he's going out there and his karate is so good. His striking is so good that he's just 
able to win all these fights in you know 10 or 15 seconds like you're talking about and i think that's like kind of the fantasy of martial arts in a way is that well you know you can be a medium-sized dude who's not like a professional athlete but you have like the secret sauce and you know all of these special moves basically and you can take a regular person out i think that like that's the fantasy that conor mcgregor spoke to when he was in the ufc and when he was really really good i guess he's still in the ufc but back when he was really good oh you know i just thought of something crazy i haven't thought about in forever have you heard about crows it's either crows or ravens and their crows. facial recognition oh yeah i have heard about this that they recognize but they hold grudges right so they had they did a study i don't know how many years ago where they had a guy put on this mask of like another human face and he walked through this park and he started harassing the birds throwing stuff at them raising his voice waving his arms walks mm. to the opposite end of the park takes the mask off walks back the opposite direction across the park he mm. either walked back the same direction or looped back around and walked the same path for continuity's sake but he walks back through with his own face no reaction from the birds just sure. minds his own business keeps going puts the mask of the face back on tries to walk through the park and they started like attacking him so i am reading two kinds of articles i typed crows and face recognition and ravens and face recognition and it looks like they did a study where they found that crows were very adept at recognizing human faces and then specifically that ravens um that crows it's saying they did a study where the crows recognized people who had frightened them and then the ravens held grudges against people who had cheated them. So what? what? Their studies were a little different. Specifically for the ravens, it was talking about like um, a raven getting involved in like an exchange with like a partner and they had like a fair partner and an unfair partner. And the fair partner gives the raven cheese and then the unfair partner gives them like something they don't like as much. Hmm. And the raven can tell you know, based on, like, just recognizing faces, which one is the person who will, you know, engage with them in, like, a fair trade and which is the one who will try to cheat them. When I'm watching movies, I I, I have pretty okay face recall. Okay. Like, voices, I'm secondary to, but that's mostly from watching cartoons where if I'm recognizing someone by their voice, it's probably because they are a voice actor. If it's not a voice actor, I'm probably not going to recognize it as easily. Okay. Um, but I have pretty good face recall when we're watching movies, and it'll drive me crazy because the entire time my brain is just, like, searching back through my, my mental files. Like, where have I seen this person before? Like, it's not even, like, I know what genre or when I saw it, like what era the movie's from. Sometimes I've recognized someone as an old actor and then I realized that, oh, oh my gosh, I saw them in a movie from the 70s. Like, stuff like that. It'll drive me crazy when I'm trying to watch movies. I get so distracted. I'm like, I know I've seen this person's face before. Have you ever heard about Chuck Close? I don't think so. So Chuck Close is a pointillist portrait artist who has face blindness. Oh, um, okay. So he can see people's faces, right? It's not that he, he physically can't see them, 
but his when you see a person's face your brain does this work of taking all of the features and merging them into a sort of person that you recognize and you know who that is and chuck close's brain and people other people who have the same condition um don't do that so they can see the features of the person but they can't piece it together and they can only like recognize a person they're looking at by context clues so saying okay this person has a mustache this person has this haircut so the person who i know with the mustache and a haircut is steve so this must be steve um versus the process of just like recognizing somebody by like glancing at them and absorbing the whole image at once hmm. um so i just i always thought that was cool and you can look at his art online it's relatively easy to just go and google it but it's um he makes these giant hyper realistic self-portraits of people and um they taught us this in school i don't know if this is like an urban legend or whatever but that people would often ask him for portraits and he would say you know you can ask for a portrait but it's gonna really look like you and you might not like it and they're like no 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 <laughs> and then they look at it and they're like i don't like it because oh it, like, it looks really like them not like the image of yourself that you create for yourself but what you really look like well also there's kind of there's also like the distortion of uh i guess this is more pertinent to modern day stuff but like mm -hmm. i didn't realize until not many years ago the fact that cameras capture things at a different uh like focal length than yes. reality so like you're that's why a lot of people don't like how they look in like if they take a picture of themselves is because like it's like a different focus of the lens mm-hmm and I didn't realize that for a long time. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Why, like, you're, why you look so good in the mirror, but then when you take a picture of yourself from the same distance with your phone, it doesn't look the same. Yeah. No, it's, um, people who know more about photography than me can talk about, like, the way that you make somebody look more masculine or more feminine. Um, or you, you know, fundamentally change the way somebody looks by changing the, way that you take their picture and hmm. i think that's cool but i know almost nothing about photography it's one of those fields where i've just got <laughs> no expertise of any kind well i think that's probably going to do it for the episode thank you so much for for joining on the podcast Nathan. oh yeah thank you it's a pleasure to be on yes as you wander through this grove i'm you go that way i'm gonna go this way i'm gonna look yes, for I'm an right. exit door and i might around. i might try one of these fruits i think on um, this tree so what you should do, rub it on your wrist, then rub it on your lips, and then if you don't get sick or don't get a rash or whatever, then you eat a little bit, and then you eat a bunch. And then you tell me how it went, and then I'll try if it went okay. Okay, cool. If you never hear from me ever again in this grove, it means it was absolutely poison. All right, then I won't eat the fruit if that happens. Right. <laughs> so All if right. you don't see me within the next 24 hours, don't eat the fruit. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Max, so much for having me on and for uh, agreeing to be the fruit guinea pig for us. Absolutely. If you if you find the exit, no, though, seriously, if you find the exit, I, I will you let you know. Make sure to make sure to tell me, but don't tell corporate. Awesome. And that's <laughs> gonna do it for this episode. So thank you guys so much for hanging out, and I will see you guys later. Right. Bye. Take care, everyone.